Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is an episode of Inspiring Women, and today I am so excited we're speaking with Dr. Cheryl Whitaker, and Dr. Whitaker is a practicing entrepreneur in search of innovative solutions for underserved communities and economic inclusion for all those businesses, where she is actually, you know, her career and life has been dedicated to serving these communities. Today, she's the CEO of Complete Care Management Partners, a delegate care management entity providing care management for the most difficult to reach members. She's an advisor to my Bexa. She's up on the board of a uh, Equality Health. She's a consultant to Health 2047 and a member of Hyde Park Angels. She previously was the founding chairman and CEO of Next Level Health. She has served on many, many advisory committees, boards, has just a long list of accolades. Her medical degree is from Washington University School of Medicine, um, where she also has her public health degree. And Dr. Whitaker, I'm so pleased to be speaking to you this morning. Good morning, Lori. I'm so happy to be here. Well, great. Well, again, thank you for this conversation. And why don't we just get started? I always start inspiring women with accomplished women like yourself, just talking about how, what are you doing right now? Like what is day to day look like for you, Dr. Cheryl Whitaker? Well, right now, uh, Complete Care is in its second year. So I spend a fair amount of time uh, nurturing and coaching and mentoring my new uh, executives who are working with me to, 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 to operate the business on a day-to-day basis. So we're now trying to working on untangling the flow of our data and making sure that all of our sort of data sets that come in are matched up appropriately. So I do some pretty nitty gritty stuff on a day-to-day basis to get that business going. Uh, It's also Women's History Month. And so I'm participating in a number of panels this month. So I've been reviewing my notes. (laughs) Uh, A couple coming up tomorrow that I'm really excited about. Uh, Very different audiences, but really a nice chance to be able to interact with really the next generation of of leaders, of women leaders and really of leadership overall. So uh, a board meeting here or there, uh, and I've got a full day. I, I, I know you've got a full day and we were just talking about how you had to cut your vacation short, which seems like not good advice for anybody, um, but you are one busy person and, and, and it is Women's History Month and that is something to be celebrated. But maybe let's go back a little bit. You're, this is not the first time that you have built a successful company and so that you're in the nitty gritty of that is um, interesting. And this is also not the first time that you have been you know, helping other women women, you know, become the, you know, the next generation of leaders, but maybe you could walk us through a little bit of how did you get here? So from practicing physician, you know, to focusing on innovation, you talk about yourself as a serial entrepreneur, um, and you've always is seemingly been focused on health disparities and trying to close those gaps. So maybe just walk us through a little bit of the history of how you got here. Well, 
You know, Laurie, it is interesting. When I started out in healthcare, I, I always had questions. I was always asking questions. And that is the mark of a scientist. So if you ask questions, I always tell my children, you are a scientist because you're looking for uh, answers that may not be readily apparent. And so I want to be a doctor since I was nine. I went off to Emory University and was inspired to choose Washington University School of Medicine, mostly because they, well, one, they were, you know, you know, highly ranked. I was feeling pretty proud of myself at that time um, for getting into WashU. Uh, but then they also had a representative sample of black students. And so I felt, okay, well, I could go here. I'm gonna feel included and that there's a place for me. I went on to do my master's degree at Harvard School of Public Health right after graduation from WashU. And that's really where I got uh, armed with tools related to interpreting, understanding and applying data. It was really my first introduction to big data. And I really consider that a pivotal point in my career because going forward, that really was my foundation uh, for, for the work that I do even, even now. In residency, Big takeaway there was we were in California right at the as, as AZT, which is a, a, a drug that was that was founded to treat HIV early. We were meeting people where they were. Right. So we were in the streets of San Francisco. We were treating people. And that was what's called care coordination. You hear a lot of people talking about that now. We were doing care coordination before care coordination was cool. I brought those, <laughs> <laughs> we, I brought those lessons with me to Chicago. I showed up here. This was back in the late 90s, and I was really appalled at how we were treating the underserved. And there were really no unifying um, practices or organizations that were taking people where they were and moving them forward. Case in point, I was the only internist at a new FQHC on the south side of Chicago. I would see people over and over, high blood pressure, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, discharge, see you back in eight months, change the medicines, come back, same routine, no improvement. And I, I, I was struck by the fact that I knew nothing about what happened to those individuals between uh, visits to the clinic. I had no idea. There were no street teams. There was no, no, no data collection, even though at the time it would have been on, you know, tablets, meaning uh, stone tablets, um, <laughs> right? No, no, no phone call trees, nothing. I, I wouldn't even know if they got their meds filled. So I had no idea what happened to my patients. And that began to really bother me to the point where I said, you know what, I need to step away from this. I'm going to go do a fellowship uh, at, at Northwestern. It was in uh, at, the, at, the, at the Institute for Health Policy Research and I began to sort of take a look at secondary data sets to really try to understand, okay, well, what is really going on with people who have diabetes, high blood pressure, and uh, dyslipidemia or hyper hypercholesterolemia? And I began to study some of the data around diabetes, some of the diabetes endpoints, and I noticed that there was this dramatic disparities in uh, amputation in, for African-Americans who had diabetes, right? So I'm, I'm going, oh my goodness, this is a terrible endpoint how in the world do we, how do we attack this? And so that led me into a research career at Rush where I was for seven years, trying to get on the front end, way upstream with how do we empower people with diabetes, no matter what conditions they're living in, to take control of a chronic conditions that they might be living with. And really, Lori, that, that's really the path because I got to doing my research at Rush I began to look for the root cause. I said, well, what is the root cause here? Is it really diabetes? What's the root cause of these 
horrible endpoints, amputations, um, in-stage renal leading to dialysis. Each one of those endpoints, Lori, you probably guess, have mortality uh, connected to them. So there's a, you know, at the time there was like a five-year mortality, if you will, for people who are on dialysis, right? And if you had an amputation, your 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 sort of endpoint or your years lost was dramatically different from those who who didn't. So maybe 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 Cheryl, if I could just interject a little bit. So first of all, like that when you tell that story all of those sort of like next steps you know it almost sounds like obvious it would lead to this next step but let's face it i mean becoming a physician you mentioned when you went to wash you you know you felt like you could be included there because there was you know perhaps more than one black woman in in the class we know that you were one of few how did you make these decisions to change course it is hard enough to become a physician, to be qualified as physician, all those years of study. And then it is hard enough to be um, accomplished in the field of research. It is hard enough to do any of these steps along the way. How did you make these choices to pursue something next? You mentioned you were doing care coordination before. Care coordination is cool. You know, that's a, you know, might sound like a light sentence, but that's a big deal. And it means that you're doing something that there aren't many other people doing, but yet you're doing it anyway. So how, how did you make those choices? Because you're, it seems to me that you must have been doing them where you're breaking new ground um, and that that takes something. So what, what were the things that led you to those next steps? Well, you know, doing a fellowship uh, was most, many of my colleagues went on a fellowship. So me deciding to step back and do a fellowship was an easy decision, to be honest. Lori, a lot of, if you look at a lot of the reports on disparities, it's from people in academia where, and this is no shade, uh, as you might say to my colleagues, we're very comfortable reporting out what the data is telling us, <laughs> but very, very few people to take the leap to say, okay, I'm going to change. Or I'm going to now go and do something different that's going to move the field forward. And so, and, and that's, that's kind of, I, I decided to just to take a leap, but I will, will say that when I left academia, because I got to a point where I said, you know what, academia is very comfortable for me. I can publish papers and go to conferences. I mean, that's what, you know, people who went to my program at UCSF, that's what we did, right? We, those are the leaders in academia today, many of them across the country. Um, I decided that I, I couldn't just continue it was. It felt more like I was just building a career that was about papers and presenting. And I was like, I, I got to do something. This isn't. This isn't changing anyone's life, really. It may be helping mine, but it's not at scale making a difference. So, serendipity is also important here. I was in line at a gala uh, years ago for After School Matters, which is a Chicago program that supports kind of after school work for kids, you know, across you know various public school settings in the city. And I ran into the CEO of, of, of the Chicago Community Trust, and he said he was hiring someone to uh, manage their healthcare programs. And at the time, uh, that was about six or seven million dollars, which is, you know, at that time was quite quite large. And, and he was ready to embark on a strategic plan to kind of reposition that entity. They had about two billion dollars in assets and, and gave away about, I think, about 300 million a year, somewhere along in there. And so I took a I took a job outside of of uh, academia, uh, Lori, in practice, and 
it, it did take a leap. I actually took a pay cut, <laughs> but it was, it was a new setting where people were still wrestling with the same problems I was wrestling with, but on a completely different plane. And what I found just fascinating is that the field I was in, in medicine, I was an assistant professor at Rush and, and, and working at, at Cook County in the clinic, never did the two really meet. And it was amazing to me how much was going on in this sort of not-for-profit sort of setting around healthcare and what was going on in the world I was in. And um, it, it, was a, it was definitely took courage to make the leap, um, but the CEO was very interested in my physician background and experience and perspective. So he was super excited and that actually uh, cultivated um, you know, me thinking about moving. The second thing though, when I left the Chicago Community Trust, it was again, because one of the board members of the trust said, you know what, I've got a publicly traded company. I need a chief medical officer that thinks like you. And that was when I made the leap into kind of this for-profit space where new ideas and innovation was an everyday thing because it was, hey, if we do better, we can do better. <laughs> Meaning we, we, we can hire more people, we can um, you know, uh, spur investor returns. And that was my first foray into that world. And it was absolutely fascinating. And of everything that I've told you that I've done to this point, it was by, by far the most transform, transformative experience for me. And it was where I began to study the financing of healthcare. And they're really, because again, I'm looking for root cause. I'm going, the root cause isn't diabetes. It's something else. So I began to look at all of the different companies that were taking care of the underserved populations in the country. And the program was Medicaid. Um, it is probably outside of the moms and kids kind of, kind of temporary assistance to needy families or what we call welfare. It was one of the largest programs, if not the largest program in the country, where the federal government was spending over $500 billion a year to provide healthcare for poor people across the 50 states. So I began to be fascinated by those dollars spent and how they were spent. And then I learned that publicly traded companies uh, really handled a lot of the administering of those programs for states. And I was just absolutely, Lori, fascinated. And I began to try to learn everything I could. One, about healthcare financing. And then two, how was technology being used to facilitate care for these individuals? You know, for... For those folks, you know, like many of us have, you know, we have health insurance and, I, you know, we think we have the best options, you know, available to us, depending on what we're willing to pay. But for Medicaid, often it's whatever people will agree to do <laughs> for the rates that are being paid. So uh, technology, everything, you know, uh, the federal government had passed the High Tech Act. I don't know if you remember that, but yep. President Bush started it. With I remember that. Yes. I remember that. <laughs> right. Well, that, that spurred billions of investment in uh, those uh, interoperable technologies. Uh, it, the EMR became an everyday word, EHR. Uh, healthcare companies, hospitals began to implement at a rapid speed. But one of the things I kept remembering and thinking about, Lori, was when I was seeing those patients on the south side of Chicago, that I could refer them to a specialist, I could prescribe a medicine, and I had no idea. So if you think about, I had no idea what happened to them. So if you think about Medicaid, where we're spending over $500 billion a year as a country, 
And those, for many of those people, we have no idea we prescribe and we discharge. So what, what I was at, at Merge, the, the company that I became the medical officer of, we were looking at interoperable technologies. And that's really where I began to think, wow, well, what if I knew what happened to a person when they left because you know everybody fed into a system that shared these feeds, admission, admission, discharge, transfer, pharmacy feeds. Because if we're spending that much of public dollars, shouldn't we know where the members are going and getting care so that we could really begin to coordinate? And that's and that sounds like just Cheryl, just like as you talk about all these different steps, first of all, getting, you know, serendipity, getting opportunities or just recognizing that there is an opportunity in front of you that might be a slightly different path that you were previously on and then taking that leap that's that in and it's in and of itself is interesting but then you know it's clear where the serial entrepreneurship and um, innovation focus understanding financing and how that became clearly a passion for you which you then went on to build you know more than one um, company from it's just interesting that pathway I want to ask you just a, a slightly different question than the work is itself. But along the way, as you talk about it, one step leads to the next step. But, uh, you know, as any successful woman, as a Black woman, those steps, you must have hit barriers along the way. I'm just curious if you could just share maybe a story of, of not maybe a large barrier, but some of the subtle things that you um, have to deal with or have previously have, have dealt with and how you have handled them in the moment. Um, to lead to what has obviously been the next, you know, larger and um, more successful career step that you've been taking? Well, well, Lori, you know, I appreciate you asking that question head on (laughs) because it's something that I'm continuing to deal with. And so uh, I'm just a sort of, if if you don't open the door, I'll just go through it. I'm not, I just don't take, I don't take no for an answer, right? So it's, you know, when it makes sense, it's no, doesn't, it's not right. So again, root cause, I'm looking for root cause. I studied the economics and I'm going, wait a minute. If we had a company like Next Level Health that was founded by black physicians that could focus on the South and West sides of Chicago, that could get on the ground and do this care coordination, that could force the conversation about data transfer between these institutions and communication when a member is being discharged or admitted, we could then change something. Root cause. We could then also bring economics into that community. We could hire people and build their technical capacity to operate within the Medicaid program. Guess what happened? I went down to Springfield, which I learned that's what everybody does. Like all these Medicaid, the hospitals, they are always down in Springfield doing session during session. And I go, whoa, let me go. I want to go down there too. Let me find out what's going on. And one of the black legislators for the state said to me, she says, you know, Dr. Whitaker, we've never seen a black doctor down here. Where have you all been? Where, where, (laughs) where have you been? There's the state spends 20 plus billion a year on Medicaid, and there are no African American people speaking for those communities. So I showed up at a meeting, Lori, and a high ranking state official looked at me. This was back in 2013, I think, 14. And she said, What are you doing here? (laughs) Oh boy, what are you doing here? 
I was meeting with a, a, a I'm gonna tell you a couple of stories, a well-placed uh, uh, business person. He sat down with me. I said, look, you know, I need some help here. Da, 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 da. He says, well, how did, how did you get a company like this? <laughs> so it's been a while, what are you doing here? Why are you, do, why, where did you get a company like this? And so as recently as last year, I had a woman who, I, I, uh, who wrote, um, we're in the process of dissolving the next level health insurance entity. Uh, she wrote the most horrible things about me uh, in a court filing. I mean, you could actually probably go find it. And she accused me of being a part of a kleptocracy and how I knew um, Barack Obama, Ro Congresswoman Robin Kelly. I'm like, well, she's my congressperson for my district. <laughs> and she accused me of just all of these horrible things. And um, I, I couldn't for the life of me understand, Lori, okay, the, 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 the system we're paying for is getting us these horrible disparate results that we're getting. What are you going to do? <laughs> Are so how to... so how do you in the moment when when those those um insults I mean it sounds horrible what are you doing here well, you don't belong here which are true insults first of all recognizing recognizing them and it sounds as if you have the I don't know what it is but strength of character and everything to just lean into that and not feel slighted or doubt yourself or doubt your credibility. That's what it sounds like, Cheryl. Is that true? Are you able to sort of manifest that courage and strength of character in the moment? Or do you go through those periods? Because I will say that for women generally, it's often those small things, those many different sort of paper cuts of doubt that lead to, you know, just not, not missteps, but just sort of not the next step perhaps in where they um, could potentially go. Well, you know, Lori, I, as I mentor women, and I'm 54 now, so I'm, I, I don't take those things personally that people say. I understand that there's a usually an agenda, um, and for me to have the guts to say I'm going to start a company, insurance company from scratch, and I went out, we raised 7.5 million dollars to do the initial stand-up work and to service kind of initial risk-based capital. Um, that you know, people are like, wait a minute, who's who's control who's who's thinking of these things it's like they they hadn't they could not believe that i was literally smart enough to kind of figure out a lot of this or surround myself with the people who knew right so we can build coalitions too um so i i would say for me i'm not i'm programmed to i'm looking at the root cause and trying to solve a problem i'm looking for people who want to work with me to do so um i think it does cripple a lot of women because we tend to second guess ourselves and I've so I have a lot of more years to to have looked back on all of the times when didn't was my gut right or was this second thought right the second thinking right and I have to say my gut's been about ninety eight percent of the time right so I feel very now comfortable of uh, trusting my gut and I would say that to women you know trust your gut trusting your gut though means you do put yourself out there uh, to you you do need to 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 talk to people across industries that are not like you, try to build a broad network of people that you can follow, you know, and, and you don't have to sort of talk to them even directly. You can look at their careers on LinkedIn, et cetera, that you can kind of draw inspiration from and guidance from. But I think trusting your gut is important. Having sponsors or people who believe in you uh, is also important, who understand what you're trying to do is important. But um, you, you, you know, 
in my case, because I'm African-American and, and sort of would be, for lack of a better word, higher profile, you know, I'm, I'm just, I know I'm going to take hits and I'm going to take hits from people who have other agendas. The first call we got from a reporter about complete, about next level help, it wasn't to acknowledge that we'd start a company from scratch, that we were, had a comp, we had an office on the south side of Chicago in Inglewood. Um, so we were close to the community. We we're trying to reach be people, you know, reach people where they were and be out and be part of the community. Uh, it was, she called up to say, oh, wait a minute. It looks like you all don't have enough capital and we don't, your quality doesn't look as good as county care. And that was the first time we got a call from a reporter. It was, we were, we were, uh, she was looking at data from our first year of operation and she went ahead to compare us to Blue Cross Blue Shield and County Care. And I'm going, wait, there's no comparison here. The, you know, I, I'm thinking to me, Lori, I'm thinking, wow, isn't that apparent to you that County Care is a public entity with taxing authority and Blue Cross is a gigantic 50 plus year old company, but she had an agenda and it was being fed by someone and their, their idea, Lori, was to shame us. And then they put a picture of me in an, in an evening gown as a part of the article. So it, that was a tremendous insult. I, and I was absolutely furious but I wasn't, what's the word? I was not deterred. Deterred, <laughs> right. Well, Cheryl, it's just so impressive. I have to say, you know, to just hear how you have this, you know, just clarity, um, you know, you could have chosen many paths to understand the financing of healthcare, to understand where you got, I will just say the entrepreneurial innovation bug by learning about publicly traded companies and the financing of healthcare. You could have chosen many paths, but to continue the focus on the root causes, the you know consistent years of dedication to health inequities and really trying to change those um, you know terrible disparities um, is not just admirable, but it's incredibly impactful. I will say it's inspiring for me to just hear you um, talk about these things and we could just go on. But Cheryl, as we close out this conversation on inspiring women, you've already given some fantastic advice about trusting your gut, but can you just close out with sort of like, you know, your best words of wisdom to other younger women who are looking to follow perhaps in your kind of footsteps? You know, Lori, one of the things I think is really important, though, is developing expertise. And you pointed out, you're like, well, you were doing these various things and building, you know, a pretty significant career. You know, I build expertise in, you know, data, data science, data interpretation. Um, so, you know, I can go head to head and toe to toe with anyone on any data set you want to talk about and interpreting it and looking at. So, so become becoming expert is something is still really important. And for, for women, that just happens to be our lot, right? We kind of have to be twice as good. And if you're black, maybe three times as good, but you, you really do need to become expert. And that's why, Laura, I've been able to persist in many of these rooms is because I can, I can articulate the data and its results in a way that's compelling because I understand it very, very well. So I would encourage women to become expert in the fields. And the other thing is to be a member of your pertinent and relevant associations. It's really important for your overall network and your, your professional presence. Um, so I'm a member, a fellow of the American College of Physicians, which is the home for general internists. That's my, that's my primary uh, organization. I'm a member of the American Medical Association, you know, the largest, if you, you know, you would argue most important sort of 
you know, spokesperson for physicians in my country. Um, so I, I maintain membership in those organizations and some level of activity. I may not be the most active member, but I try to do a advisory committee here or, or judge some abstracts for students over here, you know, at least every couple of years. So I would encourage women to stay professionally engaged, develop an expertise, um, seek a sponsor, someone who understands how good you are and is willing to speak for you and help you move along some of the various career paths that are available. Cheryl, I just think that is um, incredible advice and I appreciate it. So this has been an excellent, inspiring women conversation. We've been speaking with Dr. Cheryl Rucker Whitaker and Cheryl, thank you so much. Thank you, Lori. Next time. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.